Hello, welcome to the Collaborative Inquiries podcast. This podcast comes to you as part of the Collaborative Inquiries in Christian Theological Anthropology project funded by the John Templeton Foundation and Villanova University. This podcast series will introduce you, the listeners, to the Collaborative Inquiries project fellows and mentors, as well as other established scholars whose research deals with topics such as human nature, virtues and vices, economics, race, disability, memory, human psychology, sin, and grace. We hope that they will be illuminating. Greetings. Welcome to episode three of the Collaborative Inquiries podcast. My name is Dylan Belton. I'm a postdoc fellow at Villanova University and participant in the Collaborative Inquiries project. Today's guest is Dr. Mary Hirschfeld, Associate Professor of Economics and Theology in the Department of Humanities at Villanova University. Dr. Hirschfeld's academic history is a fascinating and unique one. She completed a PhD in economics at Harvard University, after which she taught economics at Occidental College in California for 15 years. Following a dramatic and unexpected conversion to the Catholic faith, Dr. Hirschfeld subsequently resigned her tenure position to pursue a doctorate in theology at Notre Dame University. Since then, her research has focused on the boundary between economics and theology, culminating in her book, Aquinas and the Market Toward a Humane Economy, published by Harvard University Press in 2018, and a work that has even been recognized by the Vatican. This book will be the main subject of today's podcast. Dr. Hirschfeld has also published in numerous academic journals, including, among others, the Journal of the Society for Christian Ethics, the Journal of Religious Ethics, and the History of Political Economy. In addition, Dr. Hirschfeld has been an advisor for our project and has presented at one of our workshops. It's a great pleasure to have on today's podcast, and we hope that you enjoy the discussion. Mary, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So like most podcasts begin, I would just like to get to hear you speak a bit about yourself. Um, I know you have a really interesting story about how you got into theology and then theology and economics. So perhaps you could just tell us a bit about yourself, your history, how you got into theology, and then we can start talking more about your, your actual work. So I started off life, my academic career, getting a PhD in economics, and I went and taught economics at Occidental College for about 15 years. Uh, I was not then uh, in any kind of organized religion. I was kind of a practicing pagan. Um, anyway, I had already been not super happy about economics, and then I experienced a fairly profound conversion. And after a few years, I decided to quit my job and go back to study theology at Notre Dame. And so when I first went to Notre Dame to study theology, I thought I was going to leave economics behind in the rearview mirror and good riddance to all of that. But there was a lot of pressure for me to bring the two fields into conversation. And that ended up being what I wanted to do also. So that's my story. It seems to me from what I know from you that there was maybe a transitioning happening for a while, like you were growing uncomfortable with economics. Maybe you could just say a bit more about that. I mean, how you eventually got going towards um, theology. Yeah, I mean, my question is, do you want the long story or the short story? So we want want like a middle ground story. Okay. So uh, my story, take two. My first adventure in graduate school is to go into economics because I wanted to make the world a better place. And I thought that the way to make people happier was to improve, you know, to to help people become wealthier. Uh, And a lot of my fellows at Harvard in the econ PhD program had gone in for the same reason. 
But while I was at Harvard, I found it super abstract, and we'll talk about this more later, I think. Um, just there were a variety of tensions in the economic way of thinking about things that made me uncomfortable. So on the one hand, I thought economic analysis was great, but on the other hand, I, there was something that made me nervous. So I went to a liberal arts college where I could teach undergraduate economics and just kind of explore life. And that was my trajectory for 15 years. And then I did have an out of the blue experience of conversion to Catholicism. And that was really revolutionary for me in many ways. It upended the whole way I was looking at the world. It was intellectually incredibly exciting. And it seemed to put me on a better path to understanding human happiness, which was at the root of my discontent with economics. I, I was starting to doubt whether money had much to do with happiness. So my first thought was, well, I'll just go study theology because that's where human goodness lies. So I went to Notre Dame. And at Notre Dame, a lot of people asked me to work on economics and theology, like, what do you think about just wages or all these other things? And I was, and they, and they would ask me to read economics and theology. And mostly it was just, you know, not very illuminating from my point of view as an economist. So frustrating. And I just wanted to avoid it, partly because the way theologians write about economics was not very sophisticated. But also, if you put the question, like, what is a just wage, it's just hard to answer. There's one channel on the theology channel, and then there's another channel on the economics channel. And there was like static on the line. I didn't know how to put them together. So I'm writing a paper for Gene Porter, and I had decided to go ahead and write on Aquinas and, and private property, since I figured that would be something I should do. And I had put off writing it because I thought it would be a piece of cake. And then, you know, I realized that Aquinas didn't make any sense, like at all. So I was up all night, like in despair. And finally, it's five o'clock in the morning. I realized what was going wrong was that I was bringing modern economic assumptions about human nature and the relationship to wealth. I was reading Aquinas through that lens, and that's why he looked to be in contradiction. But if you really think through what Aquinas is doing, how Aquinas thinks about human happiness and the role of wealth in that and all the rest, all of a sudden it makes sense. And so that was the big revelation. And the revelation was that you don't start with the economic question out of the box. You go to the deeper questions about anthropology, the relationship between the world and God and all the rest. And that's when I picked up with enthusiasm the project of doing economics and theology together. So, yeah, because it sounds to me like you really wanted to do something like systematic theology. And then, but it seems to me it worked out pretty well. I mean, you got to do a bit of both, you know, you got to do something like fundamental, what, theological anthropology um, and economics. So, yeah, no, I get to be me. No, and, and the great thing about the path I ended up on is it makes it makes a unity out of my life. Um, so the original plan had been to leave economics behind and just do something completely de novo with the theology. Um, and, and instead, it turns out that, and, I, and I, I do think the integration is valuable because it's a sneaky way of doing evangelization. I had had problems with economics because its view of human rationality on one hand looked like it made sense, and on the other hand, it made it look like it didn't make sense. And I, a second reason I had had trouble with economics was there's a presumption that the more wealth you have, the happier, happier you are. And by the time I was 28 or 29, I realized that that link is not nearly as strong as economists would like to say. Um, and there were other things that had bugged me. Um, anyway, once I'd had this conversion about seeing that Aquinas 
to read Aquinas properly on his economic issues, you have to understand his anthropology. It kind of opened up an understanding of how to integrate, how to think about economics in a way that preserved what was valuable in economics, but which also addressed all of my previous concerns. And so there's a sneaky evangelization going on out there, which is to say, economists always have this problem about whether it really makes sense on a human level or not, this kind of ambivalence. But that's because they're using a faulty theology and a faulty anthropology. And if they can kind of enter into the vision that I have, then they can see that a lot of those problems are resolved. And that might, P.S., get them to ask about the deeper assumptions. So it's right. a sneaky way of evangelizing. So that felt very fulfilling to me. Okay. So. Let me maybe ask the question we, we were going to go on um, about methodology here, because you've already started it. And I guess I'm yeah. wondering, um, I mean, there's two ways this kind of book could go, I think. Like, on the one hand, you could write the book, and then afterwards start asking yourself, well, what exactly did I do? And then sort of draw the method out from there. But it sounds, I don't know if that's what happened with you. It, it sounds like you really had it, a vision beforehand of exactly what you want to do, exactly how these two disciplines are going to, are going to be integrated. And... I mean, here's the question, maybe just for people who do projects in theology and science in general. Um, I mean, do you have any like broad principles about how these kinds of projects should go? Or was this one just simply for, let's say, theology and economics, the way that you've done it? So I, I think I can speak more about social sciences than about sciences in general. So what I have to say maybe is not very helpful if you're a biologist trying to think about theology and science. If you're thinking about theology and social sciences, the inspiration that I had was recognizing that the social sciences in general, and mine in particular, are rooted in an anthropology that has, by the way, a default or a de facto theology along with it. And understanding how that root assumption, I mean, they're never aware of making it. It's just to them, it's the air they breathe. But you recognize the assumptions that they're making, and then you're able to challenge them at that level. But do you think, Mary, so, let me interject, do you think you have to characterize those as a, like, you have to characterize economics as like a quasi, like a hidden form of theology or? I mean, yeah, no, and I, and I think Milbeck makes this argument, although in a different track than I do. Mm -hmm. um, every, the way I use the terms, and they may be loose, but everybody has an answer to the question about what's the relationship between the world and God. And, you know, one answer might be there is no God, there is no relationship, but that, that is an answer, right? And then there's other ways, if you do believe there's a God, there's other ways of construing that relationship. And, and I guess what I want to argue, what I do argue in the book is everybody actually has a default answer to that question. And that default answer actually shapes how they, how they then unpack, how they unfold their discipline. So if you want to engage with it theology, theologically, it's, help, it's helpful to identify that and then work out the implications. So that's part one of the answer. Did you want to follow up on that or I can keep going? So what I hear you saying then is that at this stage, you think theology goes off to these, let's say, deeper assumptions, which might be hidden to the actual discipline, people in the discipline itself. Plus, you also show that those assumptions have either theological content or, I don't know, some kind of distorted theological content, or there's the denial of, of theology, denial of God leads them to these kinds of assumptions. Yeah. The, way, the way I would put it is they have a default way of seeing the world that gives them this anthropology, and specifically in economics, the anthropology is humans pursue happiness, which, yes, they do, but the way they pursue happiness is as an extension of more. 
So the, the proper path to happiness is just to get as far up your ladder of desires as possible. So economists assume that we have desires and we could rank them. We could rank order those desires and we use our resources to get as high up that ladder, that ranking as we can. So the idea is more is always better. But by construing happiness that way, you're actually making tacit assumptions about the relationship between a finite human and their infinite desire. And because economists define it in this quantitative extensive way, which by the way, I think is the default for most moderns, right? And that's their vision of rationality is doing that project of maximizing your happiness well. It leads to an understanding of the role of wealth in a good life that generates a lot of the things that had bothered me before. It makes it a lot harder to think about how to act well in the economic sphere and, and things like that. So the theological assumptions that people are making, whether they know it or not, shape how they understand human, human nature, right. which then in turn shapes how they think about things through their disciplinary lens. It impacts the entire discipline. But then what you want to do is come in with you know, the theological assumptions you would bring to bear and ask, okay, given that, because it's a distorted, it's not, it's not like it's completely wrong. So economists see things that are true about the world, but through this distorted lens, because they have a faulty anthropology and a faulty theology from a Christian perspective. So then it's a matter of sorting through what can you keep and what can you not, right? So it's, it's not a rejection of economics. It's more of a trying to get rid of those distortions. Right. Um, and, I, and I do think the result is really lovely and compelling. And so that's why I start off saying... I, I think it has an evangelical role because it's basically saying if you see the world correctly through the correct theological and anthropological assumptions, you also generate a vision of economic life that just makes a lot more sense. That, by the way, includes many of the in, you know, insights that you have as economists, but gets rid of the stuff that doesn't work so right. well. Mm -hmm. Okay, so, I mean, we, we can come back now. We can go into more detail about these um... Some of these, I, I guess, the character traits of, of the uh, anthropology assumed in, in economics. Um, so what I hear you saying is that on the one hand, there's critique going on, uh, let's say about deep assumptions that might be blind to people in the discipline. But then you also want to affirm certain things that are correct about the discipline. Um, so economics has, insi has genuine insights. Now, the aim then, from what I understand your project, a theological economics then, the way you understand it, is going to be able to both critique and incorporate what's, what's um, correct about the discipline. Correct. And, yeah, so how, I mean, you, you see that as different from other takes, other projects in theology with economics, or do you see this as a unique kind of thing? I do think it's, I think it's unique, and, and part of what makes it unique is it helps a lot that I actually know economics, so I can do the sorting better. Um, right. I think it's hard for non-economists to come in and see what are the crux assumptions versus what are, 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 are things that can be modified without damaging the underlying, underlying goods that are there. So one way that, I mean, when I was first trying to write this up in the first chapter of my book, it seems to me that there's two not very good ways of trying to answer the question, how should I integrate these, these two fields? So one would be to say, let economics be the dominant discipline. And I get this from Stephen Long's Divine Economy. He's, he gives this basic rubric, although I modify it a bit. But, but the argument is, one approach would be to say, you know, I'm studying economics, so I'll start with the economics and then see how the theology supports it. Very often that happens from the left. That happens for both sides. So 
think, think of a Michael Novak, right? I've decided that markets work really well. Now I'll show you how that's theologically compatible. Right. Or I could say, you know, I'm a Keynesian reformist. So I start there and then I develop a theology that shows that God kind of likes markets, um, but would like to have a little bit of social safety net along, you know, in the mix. In fact, one of the very first talks, you know, (laughs) yeah. So when I first tried to come into the field of moral theology, I went to um, a CE conference and there was a guy from Sweden going, we've studied all the various forms of theological economics and we've read them all. And we basically decided that people are in their various pre-commitments about markets or state and they all just decide that Jesus is one of them. And that's kind of how they go about things. So that's. Um, you know, Jesus wants us to be communists, or he wants us to be free-for-all capitalists, or he wants some mix, however you break that down. Okay. Um, so that's obviously not very helpful, like economics isn't doing anything. And, and that was my impression a lot of the times. So you could read so-called theological economics, but it was sort of like just exactly reading the debates that you get among economists about, about these mixes. So a second way, and this is not, a, Long doesn't, pick this out, but economists would be, would be happy to embrace a second approach. And the second approach would be to say, it's the proper office of theologians or philosophers to determine the ends that we're trying to pursue. Like what, we, you know, if we decide that we want to be worried about the working poor, the theologians can tell us that. And then the job of the economist is to say, given the various, you know, institutions we have and the various policies we have, these are the kinds of measures we could take in order to achieve these desirable ends. Um, so it's a division of labor. The theologians figure out the ends that we're trying to achieve, and then the economists figure out the means. That's better, but it doesn't allow us, it doesn't allow us to get to some of the deeper questions, I guess is the way I would put it. And it gets us into a kind of a technocratic mindset that I also think is actually not very theological. So I actually think it ends up distorting theology to think about, about it in these terms. So then the third approach would be so that, that would be an approach that has economics and theology kind of as partners working together. Right. Um, but the third approach would be say, well, theology is about how we understand ourselves in relationship to God. That's the most important thing. That has to be the dominant discourse. Um, and Long talks about, you know, Milbank is one of these writers, a few others he picks out as exemplars of people who put theology in the dominant position. Um, Catherine Tanner might be another one who wants to do that. And, 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 and that's where I place myself. I think that's the right thing. The, the difficulty I have with, with the right, oh, and um, McIntyre would also go into that category. The difficulty I have with that is that when you read them, and, and Catherine Tanner does this explicitly, it's like, I'm going to use theology in order to negate what I don't like about capitalism. So sh- she talks about trying to develop the maximally contrastive theology. Um, and it feels like even though you're saying theology is dominant, because you're using your theology to say economics is just wrong on some deep level, and, and, and I don't want to dismiss it. A lot of the critiques have substance to them, but it's a pure negation. And because it's a pure negation, it ends up with you actually having nothing to say about economics, except for that we should do something entirely different. I think that would be one way to put it. So anyway, so my approach is, yes, theology absolutely should be dominant, but I don't bring it into the question about economics or capitalism with a preconceived idea about what my, whether I want to reject or critique them. I just let it go in and honestly interrogate it and see what can I keep and what do I have to dismiss. I think it gives a sounder critique of what's actually wrong with markets and capitalism 
while also saying that there's virtues to it. So it's it's an approach that allows us to kind of cut past this this sterile debate about either you reject capitalism or you embrace it wholeheartedly. Right. Um, so and it also doesn't necessarily put you on the social reform path either. It it goes deeper because what I want to say is markets actually do work, but they also carry in with them this faulty anthropology, and it's the faulty anthropology that does the damage. And if you don't address the faulty anthropology, it doesn't matter where you land on the political spectrum, you're going to be carrying along a lot of this materialistic baggage with you. So you're not actually going to get away from it. Right. So why, why, don't, we, why don't we try to get a little clearer on that, the, the, the faulty anthropology, as you're calling it. So, mm-hmm. um, I mean, I know the, often we hear about homo economicus, and I think you, you think sometimes there's some caricatures of this that happens uh, among uh, people who criticize economics. So, I mean, in a nutshell, then, what... Well, we haven't really asked the question about what economics is exactly. I guess we didn't get on a, a, a def. I know you give a definition of that, about, um, about a, uh, I forget how you phrase it, a science, something to do with scarcity. But then I, I, but then anyway, I wanted to get you on, hear you on that. And then also some of the characteristics of this homo economicus. And I, what are the primary things you, you think are wrong? Or what are the, some of the assumptions that are in your mind now wrong? Okay. So first the question is about what is economics? And he- here I and I'm explicitly doing this. I'm talking about the economics that you would learn if you sign up for Econ 101. So there's many other approaches to economics that, that the people in your economics department would call heterodox. So you can have Marxist economics, you can have feminist economics, you can have all these other kinds of economics. But the kind that's taught in the textbooks and that's taught in economics departments is not really so much about a subject matter, it's about a way of thinking. And the way of thinking is making assumptions about human behavior that I can model. I can build mathematical models about this behavior. And then I can use these models to study how the interactions play out, to say things about if I change the policy, given my models of how people behave and the choices that they confront, this is what they would do and here's what the result would be. So it's an approach, it's a way of thinking. And central to that way of thinking is how do you model this human behavior? And typically the model is that humans maximize their utility subject to constraints. And to say that I'm maximizing my utility is what I tried to describe earlier, is we posit, we speaking now as an economist, we posit that everybody has basically unbounded desires. Your desire is always for more. Uh, And the desire doesn't necessarily need to be more jacuzzis or bigger houses. It could be a desire for more people to be fed. It could be all sorts, anything that you desire, right? The whole spectrum of human desires is in in your utility function. Um, And the only thing keeping you from getting to infinity utility is that we're, you know, you have only so much income and you have only so much time and that you rationally figure out how to deploy your income and time in order to achieve as much of these desires or utility as you can get. And with that assumption, I can then build models to try to address all sorts of different problems, explicitly economic questions, like what are you gonna do if the, we put a tax on gasoline? But I could also model what factors influence your decision on how many children to have um, using the same technique. And then, then we do a whole lot of empirical work and, they, and the science in general is getting more empirical to just see whether these models are fitting reality or how well they work or which models are better or worse descriptions um, and, and so on. So that's the discipline. 
So people want to call that the home economicus is, is basically just the, the rational actor that can effectively maximize their utility function subject to their constraints. And then non-economists will say, oh, well, homo economicus is self-interested, only cares about maximizing their own utility. They don't care about what happens to other people. And they have this sort of picture as basically, and I call them homo oviticus, like a greedy person. And, that, and, and economists are very quick to say that's not the case. Mother Teresa has a utility function or had one. And she was also, insofar as she was homo economicus, was successfully maximizing her utility function by devoting her life to caring for the poor in the streets of Calcutta. Um, and that's perfectly rational. It's not a violation of the economic model. Um, so the idea is I can put any of your desires, whether they're you know, small desires of eating as much as you can or big desires of wanting to help poor people, whatever those desires are, you're, if you're doing it rationally, that's homo economicus. So get rid of those kinds of critiques. And there's other ones people could make, and they're kind of superficial. And I do that in my book. I say, here's some bad critiques. The good critique, though, is this idea of extended limitless desires as, as being and, and trying to efficiently climb up this ladder of desires and getting as far as you can. And so the idea would be Mother Teresa was happy caring for like 10 poor people, but she would be even happier if she could care for 100 or 1,000 or 10,000 or a million, right? And it's unbounded. And even if she got to a point where she had cared for enough poor people, then she would want something else and she would keep going. And the problem with that is that if I think my desires for these finite goods, however they're arrayed are, is unbounded, then the thing I'm really going to care about in terms of approaching happiness is limiting the constraints, getting more time and getting more money so that I can get more of them. And that effectively makes what should be instrumental goods, namely your wealth, it turns it into a final good, an, an ultimate good. Because if I think, but the only thing keeping me from getting happier is that I don't have enough resources, then I want more resources. And, and it infects the whole discipline. I should put in a little star that economists would say that technically what I said is not quite right. And we could go back and forth on that. But in practice, it is right. Because economists just assume that we always want more economic growth, that it just generically makes everything better. There's a real imperative for that. The whole concept of efficiency being such an important concept only has a a moral valence if you think that getting as much stuff as you can out of the resources you have matters. And that only matters if you think more is better, right? Could you, could you maybe say quickly the efficiency, what you mean there by efficiency? And Efficiency means getting as much bang for your buck as you can, right? So I have X amount of dollars and then I efficiently deploy it to maximize my happiness, okay? Um, and then we can worry about whether markets are efficient at allocating resources. And it's a, it's a very important concept. To, if I want to compare policies, I'm going to talk about their efficiencies, their, their effectiveness of, of doing this. So, Babe, can I, can so, I mean, so, yeah, so I'm just saying that the, the assumption of efficiency, which carries such a strong weight in economic analysis, is premised on the idea that more is better, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so then you'll get arguments that, well, this policy that might redistribute wealth in this direction, that might be good, but you have to give up efficiency in order to get there. And it feels like a trade-off, right? A tension between, you know, getting more economic growth or making sure that, that the poor are fed and that everybody has jobs. So my argument is you need to recognize that the wealth is an instrumental good. And then what you have to start with is what are the final goods you're looking for? And I, I build this up out of the theology specifically. We do, in fact, have a desire for the infinite good, but 
that desire is for God. It's not for things in this world, right? That's, that's the ultimate fulfillment. And once I recognize that, then I have to ask, how do my desires in this world relate to that thing which is ultimately fulfilling? And what I have to realize is this world is a finite reflection of the infinite goodness of God, right? It's like a, for, it's, it's a foretaste of the goodness we hope to enjoy when we finally get to see God face to face. And if I understand that, then I realize that the goods or the happiness I'm pursuing in this life is actually a finite good or a finite happiness, not an infinite good or an infinite happiness. And that would mean that I could do something more like what Aristotle says when it comes to thinking about how much wealth do I need. I wouldn't say, how much do I have? And then based on that, how much can I spend? I would say, given the kind of good life that I'm trying to build, what material goods do I need in order to sustain that? And then that would be my number. That would be how much wealth I needed. Mm -hmm. um, and I wouldn't need to necessarily get another raise after that. So to put it concretely, there you are as a, you know, as a young academic, single person now about to get married. You think about what kind of a life living standard you need, right? How big does your house have to be? What kind of clothes do you need? You know, and two Pardon? jacuzzi i went four cars two jacuzzis no bad bad and, bad uh, <laughs> and, you know, I, I want a house on some remote island in a tree where, you know right. <laughs> so i mean behind this is an argument that you know the best way to approach approach happiness in the human life is by basically cultivating virtue right to, to pursue the higher goods to think rationally about what these higher goods are mm -hmm. so you have higher goods of wanting to build you know a life with your future wife, you want to be a good professor, be a good academic, and you have an idea about what those goods are. And it's, and it's a finite vision. And that then in turn dictates what kind of material resources you need in order to sustain that life. So, so I mean, maybe another way of phrasing what you're saying here is that, um, I mean, these are the kinds of distinctions, obviously, within economics that just cannot be made. Like, as far as I understand what you're arguing, economics cannot make distinctions in and of itself between qualitatively different kinds of goods to be pursued. It cannot help us make a distinction between a kind of virtuous, I don't know what, self-interest versus just outright greed. Um, it cannot help us make those distinctions. And then, but on the other hand, it, it gives us an account of what a rational actor is. Um, and in your view, if we all followed that account of what it means to be rational, according to economics, we would actually totally fail upon uh, Aquinas's account of what, what happiness is. Exactly. We would fall into the trap of treating an instrumental good as an ultimate good, and that's not a good path to happiness. Um, right. So, yes, I think that the economic version of rationality is, in fact, irrational. Uh, and, and, and we could talk a lot longer about everything that's entailed in that. So we've, I've only kind of pinged along a few points about it. But all of this sets me up to say what is valuable in economics. So I don't know if you want to turn to that at this point. Yeah, no, sure. Because, you, you know, you make this really interesting uh, distinction there about, you know, with Aquinas and two different kinds of reasoning. There's like lower reasoning and higher reasoning. So uh, and then you want to say, well, econ economics helps us understand one aspect of how humans act or human nature, it's a partial view, but it's, you also want to connect it to this lower kind of reasoning that Aquinas mm -hmm. and Aristotle talk about. So 
when you connect economics to this lower kind of reasoning, which you tie to animal, non-human animal kind of yeah. activity, then it sounds like economics is just like telling us to act like animals or something, you know? And so I don't know. It doesn't sound very positive when you put it that way. So. No, it's not very positive. <laughs> Okay. Maybe we could start with the, just the distinction between the two kinds of reasoning, which I, yeah. economics cannot make, uh, according to you. Economics can't make because all they could do is talk about preferences. And so my preference to become a better person is not mathematically different from my preference to have more jelly beans. Okay. But the essence of cultivating the virtue of prudence, which I want to argue we should you know, use prudence instead of economic rationality. But the essence of prudence is discerning qualitative distinctions, right? What goods are important? And then what goods are in service of those goods, building up a hierarchy of things, but in kind of a comprehensive vision. The exercise of higher reasoning is discerning what goods are good, and then ordering them well in the life that, you're, that suits you, that you're called to. So the analogy I like to use is you should be like a painter, that your life is like a canvas. And you think about the various goods that are important to represent in your life, and then you arrange them in some artistic, beautiful way that kind of brings out a comprehensive goodness that then reflects back the glory of God somehow. So that's the higher reason. It's not learning how to get what you want. It's learning how to know what you should want, right? And then training up your desires to match them. But animals exercise a kind of rationality too. They just never step back and ask, what is good for me to want? For them, their desires really are given. They're hardwired and they just respond to them. And then the economic model actually works pretty well to explain animal behavior. How do you induce a dog to do what you want it to do? You adjust its incentives so that, you know, you know what the dog conceives of as good. And then in terms of what the dog conceives of as good, like say treats, if you want the dog to sit, sit, you just train it to know that when it sits, it will get a treat, and then it will do that for you fairly reliably. Yeah, because their desires are hardwired, this idea that then the project is just, you know, achieving those hardwired desires as well as possible based on your incentives or the cost that you, you know, face, that fits pretty well. Okay, so why is this a valuable insight? Because we are not, in fact, dogs. We are, in fact, human beings who can do this higher form of reasoning. So point one, sometimes you actually do have a concrete problem, some kind of a desire that's concrete and well fixed. And then the model of economic reasoning really does help you figure out how to efficiently get to what you want. You've decided that you want to have a certain kind of apartment that fits your lifestyle. Economic reasoning can help you think a little bit about how to do that. Um, but more importantly, the value that economics brings to the world is that most people do not exercise their higher form of reasoning. I mean, Aristotle didn't think most people did what he thought they should do. Aquinas doesn't think most people do what he thinks they should do. Um, most people do, in fact, pursue their desires as given and try to get as much of them as they can. It's, it, it's actually a fairly good representation of how a lot of people actually behave. And insofar as people actually behave that way, if I'm trying to think about how to design policies, it's helpful to know. It may not be good to try to maximize your profits ruthlessly. But a lot of people are trying to do that. And if I know that's what they're trying to do, then it will help me know that, say, if I want to try to help the working poor by imposing a minimum wage, it will alert me to the fact that that might have counterproductive consequences, like they might end up getting fired instead. Um, because if you live in a world of people who are just trying to maximize their utility, that's what you would expect. And that's maybe what you see in the world we actually live in. So it gives us a way of saying, I expect economics to actually work pretty well as a prediction of how people behave. 
And Aquinas gives me, and Aristotle give me good reasons to understand that. It's because most people are actually operating under this, out of this lower reasoning. The objection, though, is that economists think that that's reason full stop. And so they will never invite you to get out of that trap or see that it's limited or distorted. Um, and that's where the theologian can come in and offer a counter vision. As far as I understand your critique as well, to say that that's when an economist says like, look, this is what we do and here's the best way to do it. And that's rational. They want to say it's descriptive, but your point is like, this is not descriptive at all. I mean, to even call it rational like that is to really kind of make a normative value judgment, which then teaches people how to think in this way. And that's one of the parts of the book I really found interesting where you you mentioned how, I mean, for some of the stuff that e economists teach can actually be counterintuitive at first for students. Mm -hmm. um, so there's a kind of like training that has to happen about uh, to come to think like an economist. And then they can say, well, we're just describing how things happen. But it's actually, no, no, you're actually training people to think this way. Um, exactly. And maybe they, they kind of hesitate to admit that, but there's a kind of formation happening. Precisely, precisely. So I can give you the best example of this. What happens in the first chapter of an Econ 101 textbook? It's, it's the lesson is you should ignore your sunk costs. And a sunk cost, um, so the example of a sunk cost is you're playing poker, right? So you drew your first hand, you thought it was pretty good, you put a lot in the pot, and then you finally draw a card, and you realize that you can't possibly win. There's, there's a kind of reasoning that a person might have that says, well, I've got so much that I put into it, I need to keep competitive to try to win the pot, even though I realize I no longer can. And economists are like, no, With whatever happens going forward, you already spent that money. And so you should ignore the money you've already spent and only think about what the trade-offs look like, given that you've already spent the money. Um, so to give a, a concrete example, let's say I buy season tickets to the opera. This actually happened to me. Okay. Um, I bought season tickets to the opera, and now it's the day of the opera, and it's raining out, and I had a rough day in you know, work and I'm tired, and the person I was going to go with canceled on me, so I'd have to go by myself. And I think, ah, it's just not worth it to go. I don't want to go to the opera today. And the economist would say, don't go. But an ordinary person might say, but I spent all that money on the ticket. And the economist would say, well, you spent the money whether you go or you don't go. It's now a sunk cost. Ignore it. Only ask whether your benefit from going right now is greater than not going. And, right? So you stay home. So that sounds, do you understand the reasoning? Did that make yep. sense? Yeah, yeah. Okay. All right. The problem is because we have this two-tiered rationality, it's very often the case that there's something that I know I should do, but when the moment comes, I don't actually want to do it, right? And in order to train myself up in virtue, there are some times when I should go, even though I don't want to. So going back to my opera day, I stayed home because I'm a well-trained economist and I know I should ignore my sunk costs. The problem is I ignore my sunk costs all the time, which means I could try to pre-commit to, say, a gym membership. But it's the same principle. I already paid the gym membership. On the right. day that comes, I don't want to go. I ignore my sunk costs and I don't go. So if I'm always ignoring my sunk costs, I can't possibly develop virtue hmm. because virtue involves trying to get a pre-commitment, right? So there's, there's things like that. So they're actively teaching students to kind of think in the moment, to think about their decisions, to, you know, 
piece by piece rather than constructing a whole vision of what they want their life to be about. And that they always want more money, which, you know, is not a good way to live a life. So. Okay. So you've, you've, you've given some, some great um, critiques, let's say of some foundational assumptions within economics. But on the other hand, I know you also do not want to uh, do something like capitalism is terrible and uh, we need to get rid of it. You don't want to make that kind of move as a theologian. So there's, I know there's some aspects of capitalism and markets which you think are compatible with Catholic teaching and are actually well compatible with Aquinas' um, own anthropology. So maybe, yeah, maybe you can tell us a bit about your thoughts on that. Yeah, so what, is, what are the good of markets and the good of private property and, and the rest? Aquinas actually actively defends private property. It's not just a concession to sin or whatever. And his defense of private property is, it respects our finitude. But he basically is capturing the intuition that economists would have, that specialization of labor, and division of labor and trade is actually welfare enhancing for everybody. So if you were to go off and try to provide for yourself everything that you, could, everything that you need on a material basis, just as a thought experiment, just imagine how poor you would be if you had to grow your own food, make your own clothes, build your own house, right? And the reason you would be very, very poor is because you would be doing all these things. You would never master them. You would never be very good at doing what you're doing. So if we specialize in our fine, you know, whatever is our finite expertise. So I decide to become a baker. I become a very good baker because that's what I do all day, right? I cultivate my talents as a, as a baker. And then you specialize in making shoes, and that becomes your talent. And then if we're allowed to trade with each other, we can benefit from each other's specialization, right, and, and gain from trade that way. The church fathers talked about our, our tendency to barter and truck and trade, and they talked about it as providential design from God to remind ourselves that we're socially interdependent, right, that we're all much better off if we have a community in where some people do one type of work and other people do another type of work and so on. And the beauty of markets is that they allow for an exchange to happen in a way. Um, they, they just coordinate our decision making in a way that's just astonishingly better than we could do if we tried to do it from central planning. So how does your shirt get made? I mean, first of all, recognize if you had to make the shirt yourself, you'd be very, very poor. But the shirt gets made because there's a whole bunch of producers who have specialized. Somebody specialized in growing the cotton. Somebody specialized in making machines that will weave that cotton into into cloth, other people specialized in dye, all the rest of it. And they don't have to try to do a whole bunch of research to figure out, okay, how much should I how much cotton should I grow so that some guy can buy it and, and make cloth out of it? All they have to do is look at the price signal. And the price signal tells them how valuable the cotton is to the market. So they have some way of knowing how much cotton to produce. But the price signal coordinates all all of these activities so that you can have the shirt that you're wearing. At a, you know, at a remarkably cheap price. Um, it really is almost like a free lunch. Economists like to say there is no such thing as a free lunch. But our, our joint cooperative production this way allows us to be collectively way more productive than we could be individually. And it's the prices that have signals that tells us which of these very small chopped up activities are valuable to other people, right? So, you know, if there's a hurricane in Florida, it's the rise in price in price of wood that tells the lumberjacks in, in Oregon to go out and chop down a few extra trees. Um, they don't have to read the newspaper. They can just follow the price signal. It tells them what to do. 
so the spread of markets lifted us out of a really dire poverty. And, and, and I think it's just a mistake to, you know, I, and it feels providential because of the way it works. Just the spontaneous nature of it just has always struck me as being somewhat providential. And like I said, the church fathers talked about the way it reminds us of our interdependence with one another. So that's the good. And, and, and I think modern people just have no idea how much richer you are on account of the spread of all of this stuff. So if you go back, well, 1500, but you could even go back to America in the 1800s. American 1800s had a standard of living per capita that's roughly comparable to the poorest parts of Africa today. And the difference between one and the other has a lot to do with the way markets have allowed us to specialize further and benefit from these gains from trade with one another. Um, so it's huge. And insofar as we think it's good that people have been lifted out of that kind of dire poverty in the billions, you don't want to get rid of markets. You really don't. The danger is that the same price signals that tell me that my neighbor needs to have more bread so I should produce more of it. I start to think that what matters is getting as much money as I can. I start trying to maximize my profits rather than thinking about staying in business. And that, in turn, sets us up to start thinking that we live in a world in which an indefinite expansion in income is better. Um, so it's part of where the economists get their anthropology from. So the beauty of markets is the way it facilitates exchange in a way that's mutually beneficial for everybody. Uh, and the downside is it brings in this language of money that invites this kind of expansive, endless stuff. And once I start thinking about it in, that, in those terms, then I can start falling into the practices that we all condemn that are, you know, I could start to try to sell you bad milk for cheap to get more money from you. I can start trying to treat you as an object to, to line my own pockets. And so can you fix that institutionally? If you have a whole bunch of people who think more is better, I can slap communism on top of it and probably get even worse results. And my, my project in life is to try to say, we need to try to come back through the culture and remind ourselves about how to have a right relationship with wealth so that markets can do their beautiful job mm. and let us live in, in good prosperity. Yeah, I do. I mean, I do wonder though that, I mean, there also might just be a, a, a danger in, in having the means of production so hidden from us. I mean, I guess it's wonderful that we're inter interdependent in this way you're talking about. I mean, it is. it does have some goods, um, of course, but, you know, if it's the process of production is totally hidden from me, then it can kind of cultivate a sort of blissful ignorance. And no, yeah, I'm going to cut you off and say, yes, I okay. agree with you. Okay. And, um, and, and, I, and I don't quite know how to balance it out. There's no, there's no doubt that the picture I have in my mind is a small town, small town with small businesses. And I think you could get a really beautiful set of market exchanges in that. But it's also because I know that I'm producing my bread, if I'm the baker, for my neighbors, who I know, right? And, and, and you guys know that you got your bread from me, and I am the one who made it. Marx identified that one of the big problems with the massive spread of markets is, is we, we lose sight. We only see the commodity. We lose sight of the production change behind it. We forget that other human beings were involved in that production process. I think we clearly want to keep some of that. I'm glad that I can benefit from the labor of people all around the world. Um, but it makes it a lot easier for us to forget that these are actually human to human exchanges that leads to the bad economic processes that you explore. So I'm not quite, you know, there's some economists who have an impulse that I think is mostly good. Um, buy local, try to come back to the local economy so we can have these more human to human face to face exchanges. But I do want to, I don't know, a modify, I don't know what it would actually look like. It's good that I'm able to buy, you know, 
bananas and there's no bananas grown in Pennsylvania, right? So I'm glad that we have that kind of trade. All right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, I, I there's already ways, I guess, in which we're trying to correct that. In some instance, some people people want to know something about where the food's coming from now. Or so, so they, I guess, yeah, there's there's an impulse that people have, an ethical one, to yeah. to have some kind of knowledge and responsibility. But it but is I, a bit I can add, But I can add another one because I think as we in the West are very guilty of this. If I have the idea that more is always better, then among other things, I want to hunt for bargains as much as possible. And when I go shopping, I'm going to shop for the cheapest price possible. And in doing so, I may not be thinking about whether I'm paying enough so that the people who made it down the supply chain are being justly compensated. And it makes it a lot easier for me to force an injustice on people. And I don't know if this addresses some of your concerns. But if I'm demanding the cheapest possible pen, and right. it's somebody who's in a factory in China making the pens, I'm also advocating for them to get paid less. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I think. We should all try to be mindful of that, not push for the cheapest possible price. Try to pay a just price wherever possible, which is hard to do. Um, yeah. yeah. Well, Mary, look, I'm very, I'm sensitive about your time. So um, uh, maybe one last question, if you want to answer it is, I mean, is there anything, are you working on anything now or do you have a project brewing? Um, I'm sure people would be excited to know if you're, if, if you're working on anything. I, I am working on things. Um, I'm trying to think through the problem with the logic of utility maximization, I think extends to other areas of our thinking about human condition through the way it manifests itself in public policy. Um, and what I have in mind specifically is the way it plays out in public health questions. So there's a way of thinking about trying to maximize life and minimize risk and all the rest. that's actually pretty analogical to the way we think about maximizing incomes and so on and so forth. Um, and I think there's the same kinds of distortions that happen as a result. So I want to think through um, basically the question about, yeah, questions about uh, longevity, health, risk, using the same sort of sets of apparatus to try to develop a better understanding about what makes a life valuable to live uh, and how we should think about preventing diseases, trying to save people from various accidents or the things that happen. Because um, there is this same distortion. I think we often act as though lives should, in principle, be indefinitely, you know, indefinite. And, and that leads us to miss, I think, the goal of providing health and concern for our neighbors. So that's what I'm trying to think through now. Okay. I'm, I'm excited for when it finally becomes a book. Yeah, try 10 years from now. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> It'll be a while. <laughs> All right, Mary, thanks so much for joining us. And it was really wonderful to talk to you. It's okay. Sorry about all the hodgepodge you guys have to clean up there. But (laughs) thank you, Dylan, for a very enjoyable conversation. There's a sound (laughs) bite for you. (laughs) Thanks, Mary. That's all for this episode. Thank you for listening. We hope that you have been enjoying these discussions. As you've seen, we've been releasing a new episode at the beginning of each month and we're going to try to stick to that publishing schedule. So, be on the lookout for new episodes monthly. In the meantime, you can learn more about our project, Collaborative Inquiries in Christian Theological Anthropology, by visiting our website, theologyandscience.org. Once again, thanks for listening. <laughs>